Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on October 31st by me, Rob Schaff. Today is the seventh sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. When Diana and I were first married, we went on our honeymoon to Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, we're not gamblers, uh, but we do love a good cheap buffet. And if you've never been to Las Vegas, it's a lot. On the main strip, there are these huge hotels, but they're not just hotels. They are one part hotel, one part casino, one part shopping mall, one part amusement park, all within these uh, crazy buildings, all with this super thin veneer of luxury or, or theme. Uh, some of them look like castles. Some of them look like the circus. One looks like Venice, one like ancient Rome, et cetera, et cetera. It is a spectacle. Uh, we were staying at the Wynn Hotel, the theme of which, by the way, is wealth. Their mall actually had a Ferrari dealership that you had to pay just to walk around, which was nuts. Uh, but anyway, the Wynn is on the far side of the strip. And one of my cousins who had been to Vegas before, we uh, had said, if you're going to go to Vegas, you need to go to the Paris uh, and you need to get breakfast at the Paris Hotel. So we could actually see the Paris Hotel from our room at the Wynn uh, because it's, it's shaped like the Eiffel Tower and we could see it. We're like, oh, it's right over there. Well, actually, it's only four hotels away uh, and you can't miss it. But the scale size is a little different to discern because these hotels are so massive, even though it was only four hotels away and we could count the buildings, one, two, three, four, it was actually a two-mile walk. Uh, and if you didn't know, Las Vegas, Nevada is in a desert, which is very hot, even first thing in the morning. So Diane and I, uh, we've woken up and we're going to go get breakfast in Vegas on our honeymoon. And we're walking to uh, the Eiffel Tower. And actually, it's about two miles away, like I said, and we're halfway there, and Diana starts to get really, really very thirsty, because after all, even at like eight in the morning, it is still 35 degrees Celsius outside. Now, all over the place, people are selling bottles of water for like $3 American out of these coolers. And Diana says to me, hey, we should buy some water. I'm really thirsty. And I said to myself, by golly, that'll be the day if I spend $3 American on a bottle of water. Water is supposed to be free. And anyway, this is obviously Costco water. You can buy an entire flat of this water for $10 Canadian. $3 American for a bottle of water. No, this will simply not do. That markup is insane. Do these people even have business licenses? What about FoodSafe? This is a scam. It's poison. No way. Not doing it. And as best as I can remember, this was our first real fight as a married couple. And it had to do with me withholding water from my wife. Now, any rational person is going to say, uh, you idiot, that's not a hill worth dying on. Just buy your wife some water and move on with your life. Um, but uh, for me, it was a really big deal. I had found the hill that I was willing to die on right there, walking on the Vegas Strip. So we walked for a time without saying a word to each other, and that gave me some time to think about it. And I thought, eh, well, you know, maybe $3 American is a small price to pay to keep my wife uh, not having heat stroke. And maybe it's not worth fighting this fight. And I didn't. And I bought my wife water, and I shook my head, and it's ridiculous. And I'm telling you this story because, first, I think it's funny, but second, because I think it illustrates something that we all struggle with to some degree. 
after the fact, with time comes perspective, and it's easy to discern which arguments are worth fighting and which arguments are not worth fighting, which points are worth dying for, which ones are not worth dying for. But when you are in the middle of that situation, it can be really difficult to have that perspective, almost impossible. Sometimes, though, it is helpful to ask yourself, is this really the hill you want to die on? Now, that's an expression that comes from military thinking. If an enemy is on a hill, it's almost impossible to take that hill from them. And if you're going to try, you need to make sure that it's absolutely worth it because it's likely to cost you something. Literal hills aside, if somebody has ever asked you this question, it likely means, first, that you're in conflict with somebody or with a group of people. Second, that that conflict has been framed in such a way where there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. Third, your position in that conflict means that you are perceived to be on the losing end. And fourth, if this question is asked of you honestly, the inquirer is trying to warn you that they don't think that the fight is worth it. It's a rhetorical question, sort of meant to shake you and snap you out of it. It is, of course, still up to you to decide if that hill is indeed worth dying for. Sometimes it is. Uh, often it isn't. You'll remember that last week, Pastor Rod told the story of the early church working through an early controversy. The church was growing. Greek-speaking Jewish widows weren't getting food and resources given to them equally, but the Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking Jews, um, they were getting a lot of, of help, and it was by intent or neglect, it was an injustice that needed some correcting because there were people that were starting to feel like they were second-class Christians. The solution they came up with was this. Seven men were chosen by the church and commissioned to the responsibility of ensuring the food was distributed properly. Everybody was happy. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, and all these other dudes. Um, the apostles couldn't do everything themselves. They needed help. And these guys were put forward and helped with that business. And the result was this. The result was that the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Rod was mentioning how it was so nice that in this early church conflict, it ended with a solution that everybody was happy with. And thankfully, the church lived on happily forever after, right? The end. Uh, no, of course it's not the end. Our story today is actually the sequel to that story. Here's what happens next with Stephen, who was... Uh, one of those men chosen to wait on tables. It goes like this. It starts in Acts uh, 6, 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now that's pretty cool because Stephen, the volunteer widow uh, food distributing table server, is full of God's grace and power and is actually performing these great wonders Signs, miracles among the people. That's pretty neat. We read on. Opposition, however, arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of the Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen who helped be a part of the solution to a conflict that the church was facing, finds himself in conflict at this Hellenistic Jewish synagogue. 
So Stephen, a Greek speaker, is hanging out with other Greek speakers who are Jewish at the synagogue of the Freemen. Jewish people, these, they're from all over. But they oppose him. They don't like what he's saying. They can't stand up to him because the Holy Spirit keeps giving him wisdom to speak to the questions that they're bringing against him and the arguments that they're making. And, and actually, the Holy Spirit is even backing up what Stephen is saying with miracles, which it's kind of hard to argue with. So what do they do? Here's what they do. Then they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Here's what they did. They told on him. The members of this Greek-speaking synagogue kick it up to the Jewish Sanhedrin. That is the 71-member Jewish ruling council, the, the governing body, the court in charge of Jewish affairs who decide on Jewish legal matters that result in religious, political, and social ramifications. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So what's their problem? What's their problem with Stephen? Here's the problem that they had with him. First, Stephen is speaking against the temple. Second, Stephen is speaking against the law. Third, therefore, Stephen is speaking out against what it means to be God's people. Fourth, therefore, Stephen is a blasphemer speaking against God. And where do they get all of this from? Well, from the fact that Stephen is saying that Jesus will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses. Hold up. That seems a little like, that seems a little harsh. What, what authority did Stephen have to say these things? Like, wasn't Stephen just supposed to be feeding widows? What was he doing? Picking fights in the synagogue, especially controversial ones like that. Well, as we learn from that complaint, Stephen may have been commissioned as a humble table server, but his actions were in no way limited by the role that he was in. The Holy Spirit was working through him powerfully, powerful signs and wonders, which were backing up the articulation of the gospel of Jesus at these Greek-speaking synagogues that they just could not refute. He was preaching the gospel uh, in deeds and in words. So they get Stephen arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And Stephen, is this really the hill you're going to die on? All who are sitting at the Sanhedrin look Oh, yeah, we, we read on. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? That's literally kind of <laughs> the Sanhedrin being like, are these charges true? Like, this argument is crazy. Is this really worth it? Is this really what you're saying? Are you sure you want to go there? Now, remember the charges. The charges are this. Stephen was saying that Jesus will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses. They say that he is speaking against the holy place and against the law. Those are kind of like the two pillars of power in the Sanhedrin. Now, Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 53 is Stephen's response to this question. Uh, there's a few things to note about it. First, note that as Stephen goes to give this speech, he isn't in a flight or fight response. He isn't in a panic. His face is like that of an angel. I wonder what that means. Second, note that he's about to give actually the longest speech in the book of Acts. Uh, 
Now, we don't have time to read it all word for word, but you should find time to read it sometime this week. Acts 7, chapter 2, or, or chapter 7, verses 2 to 53. Third, this is the longest speech in the book of Acts, and it isn't even preached by an apostle. It's preached by a waiter, and a volunteer waiter at that. It's amazing what the power of the Holy Spirit can do in and through a person's life. I think that that's pretty amazing. So now, let's get on to the speech. What does Stephen say? Well, in the first part of the speech, which is Acts 7, 2 to 50, Stephen is answering kind of the charges against them. And for the sake of time, I'm going to grossly oversimplify his arguments. Cole's notes style. Here's what Stephen is saying. First, never in our shared history have we ever gotten Moses right. And second, never in our shared history has God ever been confined to houses made by human hands. Regarding Moses, Stephen spells out how Israel had consistently missed what God is doing. From Abraham and the patriarchs through to Moses, from the tabernacle to the temple, when it comes to the covenants that God gave, they just didn't get it right. Now, Abraham got the promise of the covenant of circumcision, which was a sign that God's people belonged to God and that they would be different from the world around them. But the people of God consistently rebelled against the promise, first with the patriarchs in the nation of Israel. When they sold Joseph into slavery, they intended for harm, but God used it for good. Second, Israel consistently, actually at least twice majorly, rejected Moses, opting instead uh, at the culmination of the second time they rejected him, to worship a golden calf. Moses, the law, the covenants, the only thing that God's people got consistently right was missing the point. Now regarding the temple, while God directed Moses to make the tabernacle, and eventually Solomon, uh, the son of David, built the temple, God was never, ever bound to those buildings. In Acts 7, 49 to 50, Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, 1 to 2, and he says this, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Now, in this speech, Stephen isn't giving a scholarly historical survey. He's simply trying to demonstrate how God is consistently good to his people, and they are consistently horrible to God. God keeps his promises, and God works to save his people, and God's people break their promises and miss the whole point, and they rebel against God. For the longest part of the speech, which I just gave you the Coles notes on, it's very important to note something. Stephen has been including himself in the same camp as, as the accusers. When he's recounting Israel's story from start to finish, and where he's answering the questions of the charges against, you know, Stephen, you're against Moses and you're against the temple, he is including himself with the Sanhedrin. He is saying things like, it's our father Abraham and our ancestors and our forefathers. And to my count, he uses the word our 10 times. He's saying, this is our story. This was how God was good to our ancestors. This is how God gave us promises. And this is how we got it wrong all the way up to Jesus. But all of that us and ours changes in the second part of Stephen's speech, when it all becomes you and yours. Now, it's only three verses long, and so we're going to read that part in its entirety. It goes like this. This is Stephen, and he says, You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Who is on trial here? The accusers are now being accused. The judges are now being judged. Stephen Stephen starts out his accusation by accusing them of being stiff-necked people which is an Old Testament expression many times used to refer to Israel as disobedient, obstinate, and stubborn, like an ox stiffening its neck to refuse to go the direction that its yoke is leading it. Stiff like the neck of the lifeless golden calf that they chose to worship instead of Yahweh. Stephen's whole speech comes into focus. He's been speaking about Jesus the entire time. While we were given the covenant of circumcision, you and your hearts are still uncircumcised. While God was working in our history, you are still resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. God sent us prophets and your ancestors would persecute them. God sent us the word of the Messiah and your ancestors would kill the messengers. Stephen is accusing them of failing to learn the lessons from their shared history. God sent us Jesus and you have betrayed and murdered him. Now they accuse Stephen of changing the law, and Stephen accuses them of disobeying the law all along. Here's the thing. Stephen in this speech is not trying to defend himself. He simply found a hill that was truly worth dying on. He was trying to get them to see the truth that their faith was never meant to be about traditional holy things, such as buildings or tents, or religious systems that empowered them. It was all pointing to Jesus all along. And Jesus for sure challenged their existing worldview, their understanding of who they were and what it meant to be God's people and who God is. Stephen saw life with a gospel perspective and Stephen wanted the Sanhedrin to see it too. Stephen saw Jesus as the remedy to the sickness that had plagued Israel all along, the disobedient attitude, the stiff neck, the heart that is far from God. In the words, in the words of uh, Warren Wiersbe, their ears did not hear the truth, their hearts did not receive the truth, and their necks did not bow to the truth. Well, Stephen's speech settled the matter once and for all. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. And they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. The Sanhedrin is furious. They're gnashing their teeth. And when Stephen says that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, this confirms everything. For the Sanhedrin, it confirms that he's a dangerous man with dangerous ideas that undermine everything that they're about. The temple, the law, the traditions, the power and the order that those things gave them Stephen is against all of that, and they know that Stephen deserves to die. For Stephen, seeing Jesus confirms the truth of the gospel is a hill worth dying on. It's worth it, even if it comes at a great cost. And so, 
they start throwing rocks at Stephen. Uh, they take him out. They start throwing rocks at him, and he's killed. Now, there are aspects of this story that I think are so incredibly timely and relevant for us to think through for ourselves. The first is this. Stephen didn't stand up for himself. He stood up for the gospel of Jesus. Stephen was living a gospel-baptized life, and people didn't like that. Stephen didn't try to get out of the charges against him, and he didn't flee the persecution that he knew was coming. Instead, he fought to identify with his accusers, and he tried to hold a mirror up to them so that they might repent of their hypocrisy and come to know Jesus. Later, Peter would write in his letter, but even if you should suffer for doing right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, always revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Stephen revered Christ as Lord. He gave the Sanhedrin the reasons for the hope that he has and the hope that they should have too. And Stephen suffered for what was right. Second, Stephen was motivated by the love of Christ. What Stephen does as they're killing him is the part of the story that really gets me every time. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's Acts 7, 57 to 60. It's one thing to find a hill you're willing to die on at the hands of your enemy. It's another thing entirely to love the enemy that's killing you all the way to the very end. Stephen died for the enemy that had the hill. Stephen didn't say to hell with you. You'll get what you deserve. Stephen asked God not to hold this murder against them. That's grace. That's love. When Jesus, the son of God, was dying on the cross, murdered by the ones he came to save, he says this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' death on the cross was the perfect expression of love to a world who had positioned themselves as God's enemy that could only be carried out by God's son. But here we have Stephen, just an ordinary guy, not even an apostle, living out that same grace and love towards his enemies. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This could only be carried out by an ordinary pleb living under the lordship of Christ through the indwelling and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If Stephen lived out this calling, we can all live out this calling. Third, sometimes finding a hill you're willing to die on means you really do need to be willing to die. Stephen was. Sometimes people die for the truth that they fight hard to bring to light. Stephen fought hard to bring the gospel to the Sanhedrin. But being on the right side of an argument is no guarantee that people will respond to it positively. But Stephen was living his life for an audience of one. And while the Sanhedrin were booing and hissing and cursing and angry, Jesus, the Son of God, is giving Stephen a standing ovation. Remember how in Acts 1-8, to Jesus commanded them to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Well, Stephen's murder sparks a persecution of the church throughout Jerusalem, which leads, the church, which leads to the church spreading throughout the land and taking the gospel with them wherever they went. There's an expression in Christian circles. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that's certainly true in the case of Stephen. Um, now, 
Stephen didn't stand up for himself. He stood up for the gospel. And Stephen was motivated by the love of Christ. And Stephen was willing to die to love his enemies with the gospel. And he did. And here we are today. So let me ask you a question. Has Jesus changed your attitude towards your enemies so that you would die for them to have a chance to know him? I'm not sure how this question will hit you. But when you think of the conflict in your life, maybe it's in the church, maybe it's in the broader world, maybe it's with your family or maybe it's with your friends or, or whoever it's with, ask yourself that. Has Jesus changed your attitude towards those people so that you would die for them so that they could have a chance to know him? Are you sure that this is the hill that you're willing to die on? Uh, I've, I've come up with this handy-dandy flowchart uh, to, to help you determine if it's a hill worth dying on. First, what is your motivation for the fight you find yourself in? Are you motivated by a desire to be Christ-like in word and deed? Are you motivated by a love for the people that you are in conflict with? If you say, to hell with them, they're going to get what's coming to them, I don't think you're motivated by the love of Christ. Do you pray for them in love saying, Lord, even though they're causing me so much hardship and suffering, Lord, don't hold the ways that they're hurting me against them. I just want us all to know you better. If, if that's the prayer of your heart, uh, then yeah, maybe. Go to the next step. The next step is this. Well, actually, before we get to the next step, let's take a little look at what potential other things could be motivating you. So if you're saying to hell with them, um, what is that different desire that your actions and attitudes are motivated in? Is it a desire to feel right? Is it, is it a desire to maintain power? Is it a desire be, to just maintain some sense of control over a situation that's spinning out of control? Is it any one of the desires that the Sanhedrin were kind of acting on when they saw Stephen as a threat that needed to be snuffed out? If it is, no, it's not worth it to fight that fight. Now, moving on. If you're motivated by love, here's the second question you should ask yourself. Is this a fight to show people the love of Jesus? Is this a gospel of Jesus fight? Now, I don't mean, can your actions be framed in a way that sounds Christian? Anybody can do that. But Jesus doesn't care about whatever clever marketing spin we put on things to justify ourselves. What I mean is this. Is this a fight about reconciling a broken people to a God who loves them? If it is, excellent. Move on to the next question. And if it isn't, reevaluate. What do you think Jesus will think of how you are conducting yourselves in the end? This is the WWJD question. If you don't know that what you're doing and your attitude and your actions are what Jesus would do, then no, you probably shouldn't die on that hill. But if you do, and it is, awesome. And now you should pray because it's going to be really hard to maintain that perspective in the middle of a heated argument. My grandpa used to have this little pickup truck. It had a standard transmission, so you had to shift the gears yourself, um, but it didn't have a tachometer. It didn't have a, an RPM gauge. All it has was this little light that said, shift. Obviously, an RPM would be more useful but that little light was enough to know that if you wanted to keep driving, you had to shift or else you would blow the engine and wreck the truck. 
Now, I don't have life all figured out, um, but when I look around me and I see so many people writing each other off and saying, I'm done with you, to hell with you. To me, the story of Stephen in the life of the church is a little blinking shift light. It just says that we need to shift gears and get back to actions and attitudes that are rooted in the gospel of Jesus and the love that he has shown us. For people in the church who think differently than we do, for people outside of the church who think differently than we do or I do or you do or whatever, there are many others that we are unwilling to die for. These days, it's actually pretty fashionable to be offended, and there's no shortage of arguments to take a side on, and the church, unfortunately, is no different. Sometimes I feel like we are behaving like the Sanhedrin. We're stiff-necked, with uncircumcised hearts, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit because of whatever happens to offend us. I feel like we're trading the gospel of Jesus for a system of comfort that we don't want anybody to touch with a 10-foot pole. We like it that way. We're willing to die for those systems of comfort. When you think of that mess, it's really easy just to write it off and say, I'm done with it. I don't want anything to do with that. After all, who is willing to die for that headache? Jesus. Jesus died for that headache. Stephen died for that. And I think the whole point of this story is that a gospel-calibrated heart that loves the other is going to be willing to do that too. Fortunately, these days, it feels like we are making others out of each other. It feels like unity is threatened. And, and I think that we should learn something from Stephen. I think that we should be willing to die for the gospel of Jesus for our world and for each other. Because in so many ways, we all live out unbelief in our own lives. So let's, let's come back to Jesus. Let's be recalibrated. I'd like to end this sermon by reading James 1, 2 to 8. It goes like this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. With that in mind, I have some questions that I would like us to reflect on. If you're watching this sermon at home, obviously you are because we're recording an online sermon. But anyway, uh, you might want to discuss these questions with people. Um, here's how it goes. Question one, questions to think about. How do you love people you are in conflict with? Two, how does the gospel of Jesus calibrate your attitudes towards people who have seemingly irreconcilable, who you have seemingly irreconcilable differences with? And three, in what ways is it easy for a person and for a church to fall into a Sanhedrin attitude? And how do we combat this? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.